sponsored by Playfair Capital. Rethink the way you live and work. Hello and welcome to the Chess Pit Pod, the podcast in which three guys talk about chess occasionally. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined as always by my good friend Phil Makepeace. Good morning. And Chris Russell. Hello. Who's also my good friend, I, I should add. <laughs> How are we doing, guys? It's been a tumultuous week, I won't lie. My wedding has to be cancelled, so that's that's been fun. But apart from that, yeah, uh, the candidates is on, and we're, uh, we we attempted uh, doing some bonus material last night, didn't we? <laughs> but it, didn't, it, it didn't quite happen. Tell me about that, guys. What were you up to? So we did the first live stream for the Chess Pit Pod, where we went back over Ding Lorenz game yesterday with MVL, Maxime mm-hmm. Vachier-Legrave. Le Vachier-Legrave. I can't say that name, because... <laughs> <laughs> because in my head, it's just MVL. And then I just sort of fill the, the V and the L with French sounding words afterwards. And <laughs> Matthew Volavon Lautrec. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, but we looked through his game, uh, ran through the positions, and it was really useful for me. But unfortunately, we <laughs> we are new to streaming, and so there were a number of... Uh, ugly, ugly mechanical issues that raise their heads. But hopefully in the next couple of days, we'll do another one and all of those issues will be ironed out. Well, if you're good at lip reading, you can lip read me. Um, you just won't be able to hear me. I mean, yeah. It might be a better, might be better for your chest. I don't know. Wait, the, so you were trying to analyse a game, but nobody could hear what you were saying about it. Uh, people could hear what I was saying. Okay, <laughs> which, as you'll agree, is the important thing when when we're doing a bit on on analysing a chess position, because my knowledge of chess is just superior to everyone. So yeah, really okay. quite interesting video, which is just me being like, and then he moved this piece. Tell us about that film. And it's me basically signing for the death yeah (laughs) but yeah the candidates is on and has been good fun so far i'm pretty sure every prediction that you guys made is already pretty much out the window that's not quite true Uh, i think chris's carana prediction is very live yeah that feels like he's made a good start doesn't he with one and a half out of two yeah i mean beating alexienko is what we said that everyone would want to be doing and he's done it so and he made it look very easy yesterday as well Mm. i don't know if that's doing a slight disservice to the game but from the playthrough that I did afterwards, it looked like a very, very smooth and comfortable win for him. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it just fell apart very quickly at the end for Alexienko. Yeah. Not quite as spectacularly as it, it happened for Ding, who just blew up in spectacular fashion, really. You shouldn't really, as black, have your king on G6 on move 21. Uh, it's not really a thing. But... Yeah, and it seemed like that was by choice as well, that he went for this. Big but it wasn't just that. It was, it was the best move. Yeah. <laughs> king G7 and King G6 were the best moves. It was that bad by then. It's unbelievable. Mm. Yeah. How much do you think that Ding is, um, his preparation has been hit by being in quarantine and all of these things? Do you think that can be somewhat attributed to him losing more games in the tournament than he might lose in an average season by round two? He hasn't looked happy, has he? Uh, he just sort of skulked off after resigning yesterday. Um, yeah, he's just not, not looking a very happy bunny. Having said that, no. uh, Wang Hao was in the same situation and Wang Hao was actually calling for the tournament to be postponed. And he's on, he's nearly on two out of two. He should yeah, have really I saw, been beating I saw yesterday. yesterday. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those things where we were talking yesterday on the stream saying that the the impact that 
the, the various world events have had on the two Chinese players seems to be completely different. Uh, in the one case, it's really seemed to negatively have affected Ding, but um, it, it seems to have positively affected Wang Hao. And uh, Jan Gustafsson was saying on the Chess24 um, stream yesterday that maybe Wang Hao was just treating this as a sort of shot at nothing. And it yeah. just doesn't think the tournament is really... Uh, like He's just taking it as a free hit and it's working really well for him. Whereas, I guess with Ding, th- there was always the pressure that he's playing good chess at the moment so you'd expect him to be challenging for the for the top and so it's gone the opposite way for him but uh, again I, I did, obviously reading psychological uh, realities into that but it does seem plausible it's very easy to do that in with the hindsight as well of seeing what the results were and then backfitting a story that sort of fits together all of the little pieces but yeah there probably is something to that isn't there that he was carrying a lot of extra pressure into the event phil has a quiz phil does have a quiz so I believe last week we were talking about actually that's not true i'll start again a few weeks ago we were talking about uh english grandmasters and how there just aren't very many of them um in particular ones under the age of 30 um of which there are i believe two i think it's just david howell and daniel fernandez but i might be wrong is that correct chris i think that's right i feel like i had a look at that stat as well i think i think you could be right there so mr howell himself who presumably has a car with an exhaust pipe now um (laughs) maybe maybe he holds the record for beating a grandmaster, for the, so being the youngest person to beat a grandmaster in any official game. I would like to know how old he was and which grandmaster he beat. Ah, this is annoying because I half remember this story as well, but I couldn't actually fill you out with details of either of the two things you've asked me. But I can picture tiny, tiny Mr. Howell um, maybe getting a bit of newspaper coverage at this point. This is good for me because I know ages. I can easily guess an age. And uh, I, know a, <laughs> I know a few grandmasters as well. So, you know, I think I'd be exactly. quite worried if I were you, Chris. OK, this... go on then. Uh, give me some ages that you know. <laughs> well, I've got, I've got a lot of ages under my belt here. I can, I've lived through some of them myself, in fact. We'll wait till the end for the before we start guessing, shall we? Well, you okay. were born in 1891, so this is definitely... <laughs> the, the grand old days of chess. You know all of the ages now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure numbers go up that high. <laughs> yeah. Back when chess was proper, you know. None of this wussy modern stuff. None of these pawns advancing down the flanks. It was just good solid chess where you always had to take or be taken. Had to stand like a man. Yeah. <laughs> Where men were men and women were frightened. Those those days. Oh, God. <laughs> I've got a note on the running order. Rook definition housekeeping. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. I presume it it's harking back to the time when we talked about the, the, the proper name of a rook. Is that, is that I yes. had another one of my students call it a tower the other day as well. So it's been stuck in my head since we had that conversation too. Das Tor. So there's a guy called James in Virginia. Hello, James. Um, who got in touch with us via Lee Chess um, to basically... Good old Lee. <laughs> jokerly boot us for not having actually covered that. I believe in, as, as, as is our want, we drifted off on some random tangent and never actually properly defined Rook in the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> just, to, just to clarify, just to do a bit of housekeeping there. It comes from the Persian word Rook unsurprisingly and um, that means chariot oh, wow. so um yeah that's I, it i can see how a chariot became a castle there they're both similar things aren't they 
Well, because it's just it's just a Western representation. Um, that's all. It's just kind of gone through history as being from a kind of from Europe. Our friend Rick says the <laughs> uh, in Europe the Castle of Tower appears for the first time in the 16th century as a tower on the back of an elephant, uh, and then uh, the elephant just disappeared. Why would you build a tower on the back of an elephant? I think I think it's one of those ones where they have. Have you seen it where they've got? It's like almost like a four poster bed on a on an elephant, and that's how people used to ride around. Oh. <laughs> I can't believe they didn't go with a four-poster bed. That would have been a much better chest. <laughs> what would the four-poster bed do if we had this bonus piece that you could just throw on the... Maybe that's an, that's an idea for another game. A silly question, yeah. Lob a four-poster bed on the game once again. Maybe your king can kind of enter its own four-poster bed and then be safe from checks for a certain number of moves or something. <laughs> All right. We can do, cool. I'm sure we can do this. <laughs> the four-poster bed game. I like, quite like the idea of like being able to add equipment to your player so they can do more as well. So obviously if you can add the four poster bed to your yeah. knight or something and then it suddenly becomes <laughs> like a, an elephant and then you know you can increase its range of moves or something. Well there is this there is this one isn't there the the maharaja which is a queen and a knight. So the the way you play maharaja is that you one player only has that piece only has the maharaja the queen and the knight. And, every, and the other player has their full army and the full army should win. But it's a good little training tool with kids in particular, where you're basically just saying, right, this is your queen and knight. This is your Maharaja. And the same uh, checkmate and stalemate rules apply, where if you can't, if you're being looked at by another piece and you can't move anywhere safe, then it's checkmate. And if you uh, get trapped, but you're not actually being looked at, that would be stalemate. But the idea is that the player with Maharaja is trying to sort of, you can get some really groovy checkmates where, say, white just let left some holes in front of their pieces. You could have like some random checkmate on on F three or G two or D three where the king's on um, E one. Uh, it's a good little training tool, but it just brings that just brought that to mind where this Maharaja can go do lots of things by going hoovering off lots of pawns at the beginning of the game. Basically, if if the the side with all the pieces manages to keep all their keep all the entire army then they should win. But yeah. it's just a nice little thing of building up this attack as you go. Um, what else could we have that would be fun? Um, well, in terms of combination of pieces or like additional... Yeah, maybe, maybe Rook, you can lower a drawbridge in one of the diagonals. And it just starts spitting out pawns or something. <laughs> <laughs> could maybe make the Rook a carrier piece so you can put yeah. other pieces in it and then get them down the board quickly. So you could maybe put a pawn in it and then and then push it down to promote. A pawn could ride on a knight, maybe. Yeah, or that too. Yeah, I guess a knight would make sense as a carrier piece. The bishop, I'm sure there's some fun additional. This is like it's like those board games you get where you get expansion packs. But I wonder what <laughs> I wonder what a chess expansion pack would look like. If we could ex- expand the board and you'd get a couple of extra pieces or something like that. That's another thing yeah. we could think of. I've also played it where you have two boards uh, next to each other, so right. you're basically playing sixteen by eight. Mm-hmm. And you put the pieces in the at the beginning, sort of in the middle, so you have them on uh, what would be E one to H one and yeah. I one to whatever that would be L one. Have you got two kings across your? No, no, you've just got the same number of pieces. You just spread across sixteen by eight. So oh, you've got, so you've got lots of gaps as well. You've got all this room around the side. Yeah, it's quite gro- it's quite groovy. I, I saw mm. a thing yesterday where someone had made like a. a 
double sized board and then all the pieces were a space apart um mm-hmm. especially for coronavirus i all see the pieces, right okay. uh, very all the good. pieces spots responsibly social distancing so but i don't know how yes. that kind of game would work either but maybe that's a maybe we should play that game as well like the uh, uh, coronavirus special um where the pieces don't actually come anywhere near each other or you could do like an infection version right where you have to infect all the other pieces isn't that just like atomic where if you take something all the things around it blow up yeah. yeah. Or you could just do it if you land on a square around a piece, then it becomes infected. and you It have becomes immobilised for a move, yeah. Yeah, and you have to try and get the whole of the opposition's team uh, infected or something like that, and the first one to do that wins. It's incredible that chess really hasn't developed in thousands of years, isn't it? Where in a couple of weeks of uh, podcasting, we've reinvented the game numerous times. And improved it. Sure. <laughs> yeah exactly we've uh, been recording for 14 minutes so that we've done that in all in about what four we've just <laughs> made chess so much better <laughs> what were they thinking of all those years ago my uh, compatriots from the from the 1890s have a lot lot to answer for <laughs> I've got a candidates update written on the on the running order, but we've we've pretty much done that. Do you, should we go over any more candidate stuff? Is there is there anything that you want to talk about in terms of the candidates? Um, Kramnik pulling out was quite big mm. of the commentary. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. It was great when the Chess Twenty Four picture was just it was a picture of all of the commentators and Kramnik just had a big red cross over his face. Yeah, it was something. It was like it was like something out of the Old Testament. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like bring out your dead. Yeah, do you want to talk us through Kramnik then? Well, as far as I understand it, he'd uh, suggested that the tournament itself uh, should be minimum postponed uh, under the current situation, and that he didn't feel that he was um, that he was sort of endorsing it to some extent by commentating on it, and he didn't feel that that was right, and that he thought the only responsible thing for him to do was to pull out from anything associated with the tournament. I think. Are we being bad people by continuing to cover it, even from afar, even while we isolate ourselves? Well, how many people do you think are affected by it? How many people are, are legitimately at risk of, of catching this virus? I mean, everybody. But how many people or, are there? there? Like, I, don't, I have no sense whatsoever of, of what's going on. I saw a photo that worried me slightly, that the opening ceremony for the candidates seemed to have this packed out theatre style venue that... Um, yeah, and there's Ho Yi Fan at the front, just angling herself away from everybody else, wearing a mask, just looking like she would rather be anywhere else at that moment. <laughs> it was all, it was quite sad. But none of the players were at the opening ceremony for that reason, but the everyone else was sitting on top of each other. And but apart from that, whatever. there's there's eight players obviously, and then there's the officials, yeah, and then there's the seconds and the coaches and whatever. So how many people do you reckon in some are, are actually invo- involved? But in a, in the world of a pandemic it's also how many people are going to be in the hotel that they're staying in their drivers um just anyone else you know uh, cleaning staff at the venue or the hotel anything um it's it is a risk um there is there is a thing on the english chess forum where one of the there's a little kind of prediction quiz and one of the questions was will they play all 14 rounds and i said yes but given what's happening in this country the speed is so rapid. I was going to talk about yeah. that. That English chess has just ground to halt in the space of about two days. 
that all of the leagues have taken it upon themselves to shut down. Um, that clubs, I've been getting various emails from every club that I'm affiliated to that's saying we're going to postpone as well. But we've all sort of seemed to pick this moment since about Monday of this week that um, I don't think that's come from a sort of official position of we have to close. I think it's that clubs sort of feel that this has got to be the move that they take. I think it was because the English government messed things up so badly that everyone just panicked when they came out and were like, yeah, you know what, we've been doing this strategy which is completely different to everyone else and we were wrong by like a, a, a double magnitude. And so I think everyone started panicking after that. And this week, everything has closed down very quickly, right? The schools are closing down tomorrow. So Yeah, I mean, my, my, my life has just been turned upside down since the weekend. I mean, this is Thursday morning. We cancelled our wedding on Sunday morning. I'm now in the process of moving out. It's all just gone completely. Yeah. And I've, I've moved all my lessons to online. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Mm. The online transition for people in a similar position working, have some role in chess. That I guess if all of the in-person chess is disappearing for some unknown length of time, that chess itself seems to be gearing up to move on mass online and our friend Lee Chess uh, <laughs> he he buckled a couple of days ago under the stress of having 30 or 40 percent more players than they usually have and the whole site sort of shut itself down uh, yep. did you see that news yeah we, we were doing our best yesterday to um, get online on Lee Chess but uh, I think it was up and running by the evening but yeah everyone's just playing chess mm. yes. but in a different way that all of this stuff is happening yeah in a kind of virus proof way do you think club chess could move online permanently then well, that's a problem because you've got... Cheating. Yeah, that, that's going to be something that we'll have to work out. Whether we do some kind of pro-chess league style thing where every player's got to have a camera on and got to be running some software that is checking whether they're doing anything suspicious. But yeah, perhaps there comes a time where even the sort of serious games begin to move online. I know that some of the clubs I've seen are running just online blitz tournaments and bits and pieces in the absence of having actual club nights. Yeah, it's, it's going to be something we have to think about as well uh, with our school clubs. If mm. Schools are shutting as of now, uh, essentially, and next term may not exist. And so we might have to think of some creative ways of engaging with our, our student base. Yeah. Because it's easy to move online lessons, lessons online with my adult students because they have full autonomy over that and there's no um you know no like safeguarding issues or anything like that i think there's also an age thing going on isn't there that with some of my younger students i would feel that um an hour's lesson where we're not sat in person and i can keep helping them to <laughs> keep their focus up that i think it'll be very very different doing that lesson virtually um we might have to change around the structure of how we approach it yeah because half of what i do particularly with regards to teaching kids is Every couple of minutes, you've got to go, sit up straight, focus. <laughs> you're saying you're more of a kind of Victorian mistress style teacher. <laughs> yeah, I am basically Nanny McPhee, but with, <laughs> but with chess, yes. I, I remember watching a Ben Feingold video where he's doing a teaching a kid's class and he just spends the whole time being like, don't talk, don't talk. It's it's actually really hard, really hard to watch. But yeah, I, I can't even imagine what amount of... Uh, of mental fortitude it must require to keep kids in line but i think after a while it becomes just a habitual you create these sort of verbal ticks of things that you just say and you may not even realize you're saying them during your general lesson you have this sort of patter of phrases that you repeat um to the kids to try and keep them in line what what are yours <laughs> all right all right come on then it's <laughs> not that 
<laughs> unfortunately, is uh, I use um whenever anyone any of the kids calls something out without putting their hand up, I always say that they're invisible until uh, <laughs> if they make a noise that they shouldn't do. So I'm not going to choose their choose them or talk to them essentially if they're calling out when they shouldn't do. So I know you, you Phil have made fun of me for this invisible thing that I use a lot. Oh, no, I quite like it. Okay. Um, yeah, no, 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 it's good. I mean, the one I use the most is, do you have eyes in your hands? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Because they just say that a lot. Because they just the kids will um some their their opponent will make a move and then they will just start sort of fondling the board trying it's like it's like a braille set. Yeah, the hands will come over and hover over every single piece as they hands make up their mind of what they're going to do next. So I so I, with these with the slightly older kids who might who might have seen Pan's Labyrinth, you can kind of do the whole eyes in the hand thing. Um, but with the primary school primary school kids, you've got to not encourage them to watch fifteen rated films. Um, so that's rule number one. Yeah, I did. I did have it. Used to have a thing where. Um, I haven't done it for a little while, but I suppose I could reintroduce it. Basically, with en, en passant, um, it's kind of like a clothesline in in wrestling, where <laughs> one player's one player's co- the pawn's coming past you, and you're just kind of clotheslining him to the to the mat on its way. Yeah, I think I've seen you attempt to demonstrate this by getting people to stand up and slow motion be clotheslined. Is that yeah. an accurate description? <laughs> you just it, clotheslining kids in your lessons. In well, slow motion, to be fair. And just shouting, <laughs> oh, pass on! As you do. <laughs> no, I mean, what they're doing actually... In case any of our parents are listening, the, the kids were cl- the kids were clotheslining me. To be fair, okay. Um, what I mean, what I basically just do now is do it like a almost like a. Um, it's probably no better, is it? Doing it like a rugby tackle instead. Um, but yeah, it's on pass on is a fun one if you've got um, if you've got some willing teenagers to <laughs> to reenact your Hulk Hogan memories. I don't know if any of you guys know Christoph Brixell. No, yes. Okay, so he, so I'm a member of Hammersmith Chess Club, uh, and I think he's a member there as well. And he yes. played a simul against us, and I've just got an email through from him uh, commentating on our simul game. He obviously won because he's rate, rated quite highly, but he said even with a light piece down and later even a full rook, you had the right spirit to fight on, and it nearly paid off in the end. I was surprised to see this while analysing the game. So there you go. Mm, high praise. Yeah, I'm I'm impressed. I took him to over 40 moves. Very nice. 43 moves it took him to beat me. Um and as you know, you know I'm a, I'm a terrible chess player, so these <laughs> these small victories are what what keep us going. But yeah, I think they're going to do that with Hammersmith, so they're going to play a mm. regular simul game, so. Yeah, no, I heard this. I I I quickly read through. They seem to be a bit more uh creative immediately. They've got some ideas straight away for how they're going to operate as a club in a post in-person world. Yeah. Although it's been it's been pretty hilarious watching um watching people trying to deal with like the online stuff. Um so you get people trying to join tournaments and it just doesn't work and and things like that. So Talking of simultaneous exhibitions and our live quiz question about Mr. Howell. Um, oh, yeah. I need to think about that. So the UK Chess Challenge, before it became absolutely enormous, used to have room on a Saturday before the Giga Finals to have simul exhibitions by uh, leading players against the the field. Yep. So in when I was under seven, uh, I had played Danny King. And then the following year, I played Susan Lalich. I was on board two. Guess who was on board one? Mr. Howell. Mr. Howell. Except that he's very not Mr. Then he was, well, presumably he was seven. <laughs> he might have even been six. Um, he's still a Mr. 
Yeah, he would imagine six. six year old. He would have been six years old then, and he beat yeah. Susan Lalich in this, who's an international master and women grandmaster in this um, simultaneous exhibition. How can you be that good at chess at six? I don't understand this. It just seems wild to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> should be illegal. Some things are just easy to some people, I suppose. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, it was uh, it was a shame when those were discontinued. It was simply just because they had to play. They, they had too many kids, so they had to play it on a Saturday as well. No, it's but, because Mr. Howell was there. The GMs wouldn't want to play him. They were t- <laughs> terrified. <laughs> yeah, it was a really good. It was a really fun, fun one. Um, I remember that because there were probably. It was, it was, they were big exhibitions. Each, each, um, each master would have a good 35, 40 players, um, including some of the best kids in the country. Yeah. And so what you have is it would take, what, uh, let's say an average of seven, eight minutes for her, to, for her to get round, maybe slightly more. So you've got David Howell sort of nudging me going, I've got checkmate next move. And then he was doing the same to his coach. And then I was getting my mum over and my co- and uh, the Bucks uh, junior coach is over. And so by the time she's come back around, there's this massive crowd around <laughs> his board waiting for him to deliver checkmate. Um, mm. And her, her, her line was, oh, I didn't see that. It was just a simple queen and helper checkmate on G7. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, um, that was a fun one. How much younger than you, is he? Uh, 18 months. Okay, so you're similar ages. Well, so you were six, seven. I was eight. Disgusting. Yeah, I was just, just eight. He was he was six. Which um, bit of that is disgusting, John? Just, just the, the age. fact that Phil could be could have once <laughs> been eight years old. <laughs> yeah, disgusting. Of course, my finest um, my finest hour came against a 12 year old kid when I got my draw out of nowhere. Oh. So I'm all oh, four yeah. kids playing chess. <laughs> <laughs> So long as they blunder against you. Yeah, exactly. Blunder horrendously. <laughs> right, where are we at on the running order? Fortresses. Fortresses, yes. That kind of touches on the same thing as as, as rooks, right? Fortresses. <laughs> I actually wanted to talk to you about this because this is a word that they use a lot in the Chess 24 commentary. Um, they, they, the, the conversation is at, at some point will always become, is this a fortress? So... Uh, explain that to me because I have no idea really what it means. I mean, I know that means that you've got a decent defence from your pawns or something, but other than that, I have no idea. It's a bit more technical than that. It's a very specific, it's under a very specific set of circumstances where if you create a position that is a fortress, it's usually something where you're losing the game and you position yourself in such a way as your opponent can't then break through and make any progress. So you've sort of put all your pieces into a, uh, I don't know, I guess, yeah, a fortress and you've you've buckled down and whatever they, your opponent tries to do to break break through, there's no, no way to, for them to make progress. And so it's a sort of drawing technique. Uh, okay. So when they were talking about, I think it was Anish Giri, because obviously he's struggled in a couple of games now. Uh, that was that was the situation. His first round game, he was a queen for a rook down. I think he may have had one extra pawn. Is that right? Yeah, so. he had um, he had an F pawn and an H pawn, and Nepomnichi had uh, an E pawn in addition to the queen and the rook. Um, if, without the E pawn, it's a draw yeah. because Giri could just go rook E three to G three and back. And that's an example of then uh, Nepomnichi couldn't make any progress, but he just goes backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and whatever Black tries to try and win that game, he's not going to make any progress. The idea being that um, the Rook can block any checks on the G-file. There are no checks anywhere else apart from on the long diagonal against the king on g2 but the king can just hide on h2 and there's just nothing um nothing that black can do in that spot and there was another one a little bit later on that he had to be very careful for which square the white king was allowed to go to 
that if the king got connected up with the rook and the pawn, then there was a certain position where he'd be able to make a draw. And these are the sorts of things that the grandmasters of that level will just have had imprinted on their brains, uh, that they'll sort of automatically know these things of what uh, where the drawing positions are and what the attacking side has to do to keep, to avoid... Uh... Yeah, it's like chess set pieces. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's just things that you you can just whip out. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's obviously like queen and king against king is still a set piece, but it's yeah. it's a lot less um, so it's a lot less complicated than these ones. Um, there are some draws with so the, I, I quite like the one where there's a rook against a bishop, mm-hmm. where you put your you plonk your king in the opposite color corner to the bishop and so then jam that, it in with your bishop, so you kind of force stalemate yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice one. It's quite a nice one. Where if you imagine John that there's a, a white king on h1 mm-hmm. and there's a dark square bishop you will always be able to block checks on g1 or h2 with that bishop and if the rook then doesn't move out of the way it will just be stalemate and if it does the bishop just goes off herring off to wherever it is on that diagonal and then it's just yeah it's just a draw Hmm. so fortresses then uh, are something that the players will, will prep and will know in quite a lot of situations, very occasionally you get something novel and unique popping up that in a position where you might not expect it, that one of the sides can sort of buckle down. But a lot of them are just known positions that you're aiming for, uh, like this bishop versus rook fortress that Phil is talking about, that it's a sort of a technique that players will be aware of and one side will be trying to avoid that happening while the other side is aiming for it. And presumably the, the complexity is why they will ask, is this a fortress? Because I guess they're saying, is there any sort of weakness that can actually be exploited yeah, by the attack? absolutely player? right. That if it's sort of approaching one of those, like Giri's position was, where if Giri had maybe two or three extra moves, he could set one of these things up, but he was always a little bit uh, too far away from it and he couldn't quite make it. And so that's why they're asking, has he achieved what he was looking for or is he being uh, kept away from building one of these fortresses? Anything else to say about fortresses or should we move on to Spassky Simmel? No, I'm good to move on. Again, this is something that I don't really know. I presume it's a Simmel that was played with Boris Spassky. So... Just, this is an article that's come out this week on the Kingpin website, uh, which details when Boris Spassky played uh, 30 members of the English schoolboy squad in a simultaneous in 1979. Um, and it just shows you how much the how much the Fisher Spassky match itself in 1972 had helped the English chess explosion because you've got all of these kids um, a lot of whom since became grandmasters or even uh, world championship challengers um, and he didn't do very well Spassky he was ranked third in the world at the time I presume behind Karpov and Korchnoi um, and yeah he out of the 30 games he guess how many he won so what's the squad he's playing against? Remind me. Okay, so let's go through that. Actually, that's a good that's a good starting point. So he was up against Short, Hodgson, Fleer. So all of these are now GMs. Uh, board four was David Cummings, who I think is an IM now. Uh, yeah. Board five was Watson, who's a GM. Mm-hmm. Then there was this guy Nicholas Benjamin, who I'm not sure what happened what happened to him. Uh, then Danny King, Malcolm Payne. Uh, uh, who else was in there? Um, all of these people sound like lower league footballers. <laughs> Arca was in there, Peter Wells, Gary Lane, Conquest. It's basically a rundown of all the English Grandmasters. From that era, yeah. Yeah. So guess how many out of the 30 he won? So he played 30. 30, yes. I'm going to go with 20. Okay, Chris? I feel like I'm going to go... I'll take the under. I think lower than 20. Can I I have a number, please? Uh, I'll go 17. Okay, he won 13. 
drew 12, lost 5. That is not, not a strong Simul performance. No. But yes, Basky just said it was the, um, his toughest simultaneous ever and you wouldn't do it again for money. Or twice <laughs> the money. You wouldn't do it again for double the money. I mean, 30 at once is a lot, isn't it? But for but, a player of his calibre. But compared to... I mean, I remember Kasparov played the entire Israeli team. Uh, their Olympiad team, their top four players in a clock simul and won and won that. So yeah. there is a, there is a, a certain amount of skill to it, I suppose. But yeah, um, cast, even with ten minute breaks every hour, he only um, only managed to score plus plus eight. Mm. Just just um, so usually in a simul, it will be it will be what open ended time wise. Yeah, yeah, it's just completely open ended. Clock simuls are basically when you've got one player playing two or three at once mainly um, well they'll start with slightly more time um, do you remember other... we played a simul back in lithuania mm. in something like 2001 it was may 2001 yeah yeah so we, we played, played against rosenthalus we did so i was in the unfortunate position of being the last game still going and at that point john it's definitely not a simul you're just sat opposite a grandmaster in this case lithuania's strongest player and you're just playing a one-on-one game at that point because he'd beaten all of the other players. Um, <laughs> and unsurprisingly, I went wrong in what could have been a... It was an opposite colour bishop's endgame where I had some degree of drawing chances and maybe in a similar situation I might have been okay. But when it was a grandmaster just sits down and plays 20 or 30 moves in a row against you and is actually focusing on the game and you're 12 years old, uh, I did not hold that draw and eventually <laughs> went down and he, he got a full clean sweep against the England team at that time. So... Uh, is there any specific reason why you mentioned the Spassky Simul? Is that just something that came up? Just something that came up this week. I uh, just thought it was a very interesting thing. I wasn't aware of it. Um, and just how many of those players in the Simul who were all teenagers at the time. Yeah, now well-known GMs. Yeah, um, and it goes back to what I said earlier about how there's only two two English Grandmasters below the age of 30 now. And mm. half of these players made it to at least I am. Um, and it's It shows just how... How much did happen after the after the Spisher, the Spasky Fisher? That's fine. The Spisher, Spisher game. The Spisher game. Um, the Fishki. The Fashki. <laughs> yeah. Fashki. Yeah, that's maybe giving off a slightly different vibe, isn't it? <laughs> Fashki sounds like some kind of uh, it's like Gramsci, just like <laughs> Marxist text. Yeah. Um, yeah, and. It just doesn't exist the same. The same resources do not exist. Um, well, just you wait till the coronavirus boom of, of young chess talent that's going to emerge. I suppose it's not impossible, is it? Well, I've heard from one of our club mates that he's planning to invest at least some of his isolation time in learning the French. So <laughs> I guess there will be people who are using their time to study some chess. Yeah, it's just whether it's kids, that's all. Mm. Um, it's not much point having having a 60-year-old getting to 2300. Um, was it not the cruise ship, the Golden Princess, or whatever it was, where they, the, where the line was that they basically would reduce to playing chess? So <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the best hope—the fact that these kids will just have nothing else to do, so they'll be like, oh, "Guess I'll have to get the chess board out then." <laughs> do you want a silly question? I've got a very silly question this week. Go on for it. So you know how the issue with chess is that it's turn-based, and so black is always disadvantaged because white can always have the have an extra move to get to mate um mm-hmm. i wondered what would happen if you could have some kind of rule where if you're mated you get one more move and if you can counter mate then you draw 
um, and I've been thinking about this and I think it's basically impossible, but I wondered what your thoughts were, were on this. So you're suggesting that on the exact turn that you get checkmated, yep. <clears throat> if you can re-checkmate your opponent, then it ties yep. the game. Yeah. I can't imagine very many scenarios where that would be even remotely relevant. <laughs> I don't know. I quite like it. Would it yeah. not change the way that you played and so it might become more relevant if, if yeah, you have that possibility? If you knew you were about to imminently get mated, you just sort of storm the opposition a little bit. Yeah, because tempo doesn't matter. So, uh, yeah, I quite like it, actually. Because yeah, I presum- guess there are probably scenarios where it could happen. And it does eradicate that unfair advantage that White has by having the first turn. Yeah, because to to win a game, you're going to have to be two tempi ahead. So that yeah, requires yeah. more skill than just being one ahead. Well, only if they can deliver exactly mate. Yeah. If, does it count if your opponent's got a forced mate? What do you mean? So say one player mates, but the other player has got, say, a forced mate in two. No, because that, that would be two tempi <coughs> ahead, wouldn't it? So that okay. would be a win for white. But even if it's like a check and something, so it's a totally forced, you can't deliver it because it's more than one move away. John, you're the, arbiter, you're the uh, constructor of this new game. You decide. Does that make sense as a question? That you've... Yeah. Yeah. How can you have a forced mate when the other person is in, already in checkmate, I guess? That would be my issue. The, the other person doesn't need to move because they're already there. So Okay. So it has to be exactly in one move then? Yeah, I think so. Which I think is very unlikely. Otherwise, the white player will have had a forced mate in, say, three, maybe. Yeah. And then black is just being allowed to catch up. Yeah. Yeah, so it has to be that white in that spot would win. So, yeah, it has to be. No, I think it would change. It would definitely change the thing with where you just resign when your opponent's getting got that forced mate. If you can do something back. Um, I think Chris is right, though. It'd have very yeah. few practical applications. Yeah, it would be like once in a hundred years where people would be like, whoa! <laughs> but I don't, think, I don't think it would happen very often. It'd be like a tie in NFL, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't think there's any way we can really test this, but maybe we could find some like checkmate positions and then see if there's any way that you could come out of them. I'd be very, very happy to pass this responsibility off to our listenership and see <laughs> if anyone knows of a position that they could send us where this would be relevant. Because I can't think of any. I don't know if you've ever come across this, Phil. But you've never thought about it, surely. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it has happened in games and it's just passed me by. There's so many games I play where I'm like, oh, I was only one move away from mating myself, so... Okay. But maybe that's a lower rating thing. I think you often get it where there's pawn races. That's that's quite common, where one player will queen first with check and then be able yeah. to mop up the pawn. Yeah. Um, where the other player's got their pawn to the seventh rank. I think that's the practical application. It's just the, the sort of extension of that into checkmate as well. We should cover the answer to the quiz. So, Phil, mm. do you want to run through the the question again? So it was... Uh, David Howell. Yep. Is is that his name? I'm sure he's he's a golfer, right? As well. <laughs> yeah, he is a golfer. He's no Maxime Lavachier Le Grave. Yeah. So he was the youngest player to beat a grandmaster, and the question is, how old was he, and who was the grandmaster? So, Chris, what what are your, what's your reasoning? So I think I remember that it was a blitz game. Correct. And I really, really should remember who it was as well. Um, Should I guess before you do? Because otherwise you're probably going to be right and my guess will therefore be moot. You're welcome to guess because it will narrow down my options as well. So if he was six when he played in that simul against an IM, it must be older than six. Um, I'm guessing it's not much more older than that. So I'm going to go eight. And in terms of the grandmaster, he must have been against an English grandmaster if he was that young. So I'm going to say Nigel Short because that would be funny. (laughs) (laughs) It it is funny. Um, Not quite, Chris. Um, I like the reasoning 
on age, I think that feels like a good sort of ballpark age that he was. That if it's a record, is it still a record globally? Yeah, it is. Then it has to be pretty young. Um, it is eight. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I'm taking the half point there. I also like the English <clears throat> English GM reasoning. I think it probably is one of the English GMs. Uh, but from there, it, I don't really, I don't remember exactly who it was. Can I have a hint? Of, are we along the right lines with an English GM? Yes. But it wasn't short. Um, it wasn't anyone in that simul. Oh, okay. So is it an older generation player? Yes. Um, can you give me something this player is known for? No. Losing to David Howell as, okay. the, as the youngest player to beat a grandmaster. It's not our friend Tony Miles, is it? It wasn't Miles, no. Is he still active now? Sort of. Let's say yes. <laughs> Uh, so someone who's around chess circles still. He's not active internationally. Well, he, again, he sort of is. But oh, not so is a... he somebody who's playing in the seniors event? Yeah. Like that. Ah, okay. Then could it be... It won't be Arkel or Hebden because they're definitely very active. Maybe it's John Nunn. It is John Nunn. Well done. Good. Got there in the end after naming all of them. <laughs> yeah, we did need a lot of help. <laughs> So he was eight years old and he beat John Nunn. In a blitz game at the Mind Sports Olympiad in 1999. Wow. Mm. And his record against John Nunn was one Nunn, right? <laughs> Incredible. I love it when that kind of thing happens. And on that note, that brings us to the end of the podcast. All the usual things. Do follow us on Twitter or Facebook. You can follow us at Chess Pit Pod or Chess Pit Pod on Facebook. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast. If you're listening to this, likely you are. But if you do want to follow us, you can find us pretty much on any decent podcast aggregator. A word of thanks to our sponsors, Playfair Capital, who provide us with recording space. Playfair Capital is one of London's leading venture capital funds. But there's nothing left for me to do other than to say thank you, Phil. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. And we will speak to you again next week. Do stay safe. Bye.